Welcome to this edition of The B Word, the show where we demystify everything to do with B2B branding to get to what it really is, how it works, and why it matters for business. My name is John Galpin, co-founder of branding agency Design by Structure and your host for today's episode, in which we're going to be talking about the key elements of go-to-market strategy and how all of these, including branding, need to line up to maximize growth and profitability. And joining me today to discuss these issues is Paul Weefels, Managing Director and Co-Founder of the Chasm Group. The Chasm Group helps technology companies from startup to Fortune 500 activate market-leading, differentiated, and profitable positions for their products and services. And it's not every day that you get to say it, but Paul and his colleagues at the Chasm Group have actually written a book on it. The seminal Crossing the Chasm and Paul's very own baby that helped companies put this into practice, the Chasm Companion. So welcome, Paul, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks, John. Great to be here. So, Paul, let's talk about the kind of four or five common challenges that you have run into in, in the, over the course of your experience. Sure. Well, they typically coalesce into about four or five different things, John. And the first and foremost thing is companies need to know at a very granular level who their target customers really are. And what that means is that it's not just the person or the people that are going to use this technology, but it's also the people that may buy the technology, the economic buyer. It may also be the people that set this technology up what we call a technology buyer. Those three people may be one and the same. Consumer markets, they often are. But in B2B markets, they're not. Um, the notion of taking, or crossing the chasm, the notion of taking something that has been designed for early adoption is relatively discontinuous to what people are doing now. And taking that into the mainstream, that is the essence of what we came to call crossing the chasm. And the reason why crossing the chasm is so important is because getting over this hump between moving from early adopters to a mainstream market or to what we call pragmatist and conservative buyers and users is the things that we have to do in order to make that happen are typically counterintuitive to what we want to do. Or they actually reverse things that we have done in the very early market. So, so what is it that makes this counterintuitive then? Let's talk a bit about the, the focus, I think, that you're, that you're talking about. Sure. The, it has to do with how buyers are different. Early adopters are much different from later adopters. And they're different for a primary reason, and that is their, um, in a sense, their tolerance and their appetite for risk. Early adopters will take on a lot more risk with the reward of getting something first, getting it into a system so that they can achieve some kind of advantage. Whereas the later adopter really wants to see, does this work? Is this for me? Is this for people like me? Does it work for people like me? And therefore, until they get a sense of that, they're going to hold off. And we see this time and time again. So things come into the marketplace, they look like the next big thing, and then they hit a plateau. And in some cases, they actually drop off. And the things that you need to do to enable to 
get them into the mainstream, again, are very, very different than the things that you have previously done. And it's not just about tinkering around the edges of a strategy, it's in many cases reversing that strategy completely. So once you've figured out who you're focusing on, what's the next thing? That the next thing is figuring out the why. And the why is what we call the compelling reason to buy. Uh, the compelling reason to buy is why somebody would actually go and spend money on what you have to offer. And that's not a function of all of the features and benefits that you may have. It's a function of their need, whatever that need is. So your products have to match up with what that need is. The mistake that we see people make is that they equate what they have to offer with what people need. And that is, again, a big assumption. So we don't, we're talking about the customer's compelling reason to buy, not what I call your compelling reason to sell. Once you've figured out what that kind of compelling reason to buy is, as opposed to compelling reason to sell, what's coming next? We know the who, we're now figuring out the why, the third is the what, and to a certain extent, the where. The what is what we call the complete offer, the complete product, sometimes we refer to it as all of the things that are necessary to solve for that compelling reason to buy. Not just some of these things, but all of the things. People don't want to buy products and services. They want to buy outcomes. The product and service is the way that those outcomes are delivered. If you're going to promise to deliver an outcome, all of those things have to be put together to actually deliver it. So we've established the who, the why, and the what. What's next? What's next is how we actually talk about this product. But before we talk about it, we want to know what, how are we going to position this product? In other words, who is it for, our target audience? Why is that target audience relevant? Or why is our product relevant to that target audience, I should say? And then what is the benefit that it delivers? And what is the differentiating uh, factor or the differentiator of why it delivers that benefit in a extremely relevant way. So positioning is actually a statement of fact of what you're bringing to market. For whom, why, to do what, and to do what, how. All of those things have to fit together and it's not a statement of superiority or inferiority, good or bad. We don't judge things whether they're good or bad until we judge if they're relevant for us. So great positioning is about establishing great relevance. And again, it ties all the way back to the front. I can't establish great relevance if I don't know who I'm talking to. That also means knowing who I'm not for, knowing who I'm not going to talk to. And again, in markets, we have the tendency to say, we want to talk to everybody. But in trying to talk to everybody, we actually defeat the purpose of effective positioning. And positioning is very much an internal thing. It's probably worth just touching on that as well, because people get very confused about That's right. brand positioning as an external facing That's message, right. which is not the case yeah. at all. Nobody wants to know your position. They want to know that you are actually a more relevant choice for them. And what that what positioning tends to be conflated with is messaging and branding. 
And messaging and branding come out of a positioning statement, but I think of messaging and particularly branding as the much more emotive sibling of a positioning statement. Effective branding essentially says, yes, we're for you and you're for us. And that can be done in any number of ways. Typically it's done with visual cues, it's done with audio cues, it's done with written cues, but the two are not equivalent. One follows the other. I think, you know, that's something that sometimes gets lost along the way in that positioning is a foundational element for many things that, that come next. And if the positioning is not right, then actually the things that follow won't be either. That's, that's exactly right. And there's a tendency to say, well, if we're not getting traction in the marketplace, all we need to do is to change our positioning. But the positioning is a function of what that whole offer is, which is also a, then a function of what the compelling reason to buy is. The compelling reason to buy is a function of who are we talking about? So one does not necessarily get separated from the other. So we've, we've talked about the four things that you've seen on your journey that um, often form challenges for technology companies, but thinking about today and today's realities, what's different? Well, the most obvious thing of what's different is the economic challenges that, um, that we all face. And it has been, um, I, I, I quit it to sailing. We have for the last 10 years, whether B2C, B2B, doesn't really make any difference, but easily for the last 10 years, we have enjoyed the wind at our back. And in fact, in many cases, a gale force wind at our back. If you're a sailor, that's the time you put up the spinnaker. So now we're really going to maximize our speed. We're gonna to get to our destination faster, whatever we're trying to accomplish. That was a function of cheap money. It was a function of high consumer demand because of that cheap money. All of a sudden, we run into two gale force winds. First, the pandemic. We undergo a process whereby demand basically shuts down. We get through the pandemic. But in getting through the pandemic, money no longer became cheap. It actually started to go back up and I'm, I'm talking about interest rates, they started to go back up for what they were previously. And I'm not talking about what they were six, seven years ago. I'm talking about what they were 10, 15 years ago. Um, there is a general feeling that, you know, it's so terrible having interest rates at 5%, whatever they are, depending on where you're operating. But actually, that's normal. Where we came from was a position of abnormality artificially lowered rates. So what does this mean then for companies operating in this reality today? Well, first and foremost, you have to ask yourself if you're being buffeted by these headwinds, which virtually all of us are, is my strategy really crafted for today's realities or is it based on yesterday's assumptions? Is it based on the world of yesterday? Mm -hmm. High demand, mm -hmm. cheap money, or are we now facing a situation, which I think we are, whereby a lot of must-haves back then become nice-to-haves now? And if you look at your own you know, individual lives you know, as consumers, we make those decisions every day in our households. Last month, I could do this. This month, I'm not going to do that. And companies come to a reckoning. Um, 
either I am built to survive these headwinds and I know what to do, or I don't know what to do. I haven't seen this. Or in many cases, I, as a leader of my company, I've seen this before, but I have lots and lots of colleagues, teammates who have never seen this before, and they don't know what to do. And therefore, one has to step back and say, you know what, this is not a time for tinkering around the edges. We really have to ask the fundamental question, are we built for today's realities and those going forward? Or are we still operating based on yesterday's assumptions? So in a world where companies may be tightening their belts, there's vendor consolidation, choices are more considered, how does this affect a technology company? Well, it affects a technology company in lots of different ways. First and foremost, like anything else, we decide which technologies we actually have to have and those which we would like to have. Again, the must-have versus the nice-to-have. And so there are certain technologies that our businesses are built around. We can't, literally cannot do without them. So we all have back-end databases. We all have back-end ERPs and companies of almost any sort. There's all the, what we call, systems of record that we use these things to run things, count things, things like that. Those are always going to have to be a part of a company's equation going forward. We then look at what we call systems of engagement. Well, those are how we interact so you think of you know CRM systems and you think of you know analytics systems and things like that. Those, well, I wonder if we could still kind of survive with last year's model, so to speak. Um, we talk about systems of insight, the you know all the analytics dashboards. Those are nice to have, but do we really know what we're measuring and do we get real value out? And then we talk about all the cool things that we would normally, you know, say, yes, let's spend money on this, right? Let's buy yet another application of, of MarTech, you know, marketing technology. Let's buy yet another application of financial technology, FinTech. Hang on. Do we actually need that? What are they actually doing for us? And I think what's really interesting about this, this idea of, you know, must-have versus nice-to-have is that it all comes back to the problem that you're actually trying to solve and how valuable that is for a, for a buyer. That's exactly right. And problems are stack ranked. So I, in good times, I may have myriad little problems that I want to solve, and I can do that. In tough times, what's the real, what, what we call bleeding from the neck problems? So a lot of companies find themselves into Am I a bleeding from the next solution? And that's where you start to see, you know, how do you know, right? You'll know because your sales start to decline. Your customers start to say, uh, we're going to pass this year. We're not going to renew. Um, your customers start saying, wow, you're really too high priced. I know we paid that last year, but this year we haven't got that budget. So, People now, if you're one of those companies, you really have to go back and, and assess just how relevant are we to customers today? How really in demand are we? Are we looking in a mirror or are we looking through a window?
And if we're looking through a mirror, then we're telling ourselves that we're really important. But if our customers are telling us something different, that shows up on the bottom line. And just to that point of looking into a mirror or looking through a window, in, in your experience, how do you make sure that you are genuinely looking through the window all, all the time? Typically, I want to go out and talk to as many people as I possibly can who are my customers or who are my prospects. And I want to talk to them in a very authentic way without trying to sell them something. And this is the job of research. This is the job that consultants can do. This is the job that marketing organizations can do. But you have to be prepared to take a bad answer with the good answer. And we've seen many, many times where a company has said to us, our customers like us because we have A, B, and C. And we go out and talk to those customers and they say, no, we don't like them because of A, B, and C. We like them because of D, E, and F. And actually D, E, and F is what we value more than the A, B, C stuff, which just kind of gets in the way. And if you're a company that says, well, more is more, we're just going to keep adding feature and functionality to this, you run the risk of building something that eventually becomes too complicated to sustain. What does your marketing organization and product organization do? When is the last time they accompanied a salesperson, either on the phone, digitally, in person, with the idea that I'm going to now listen very, very carefully for what these customers are saying. And sad to say, in my opinion, in the land of marketing automation, where we are so used to looking at dashboards for everything, and we're so used to looking at, are we managing the funnel correctly? Are we managing our digital engagement? Are we managing this? Are we managing that? Are you managing it in place of actually talking to people and listening to what they have to say? You can't get that by looking at a dashboard. You have to talk to people. I think you know what's interesting about that is it's fundamentally about spending time with customers and experiencing their pain firsthand, which may or may not have anything to do with your solution or product. That's right. But it's about the customer's context yes. and actually the world that they're in which is the most important thing. And technology is no longer a mysterious thing, John. The world runs on technology. So when I first got into this business, you know, into the technology business, um, it was a mysterious thing. It represents, depending, well, certainly speaking for the U.S., it represents 20 to 30% of GDP, right? And it is a sizable portion of the U.K.'s GDP. And when you start to look at this and realize that this is not mysterious to anybody, right? That we essentially, our kids are growing up with this stuff. They never have known anything differently. Then all of a sudden the mystique changes. Now we're in a world of much more, um, one might say consumer marketing. Mm. But yet, if we make a mistake buying technology, it's expensive. If I make the wrong clothing decision, uh, I'm embarrassed. If I make the wrong decision about buying technology for my company, I'm sacked. So I don't want to make the wrong decision. I think, you know, many marketers will relate to having been told to sort of do more with less or, you know, just 
you know, sell more stuff, yes. right? And yes. actually, it doesn't quite work it like that. It doesn't quite work that way. You will hear the sales force say, we need more leads. Well, what if you're running into a situation where there aren't no more leads to get? So you've got to go back and ask those fundamental questions when you need to make a change in strategy. And by the way, the change in strategy is not an incremental one. In other words, you can't just twiddle with a few knobs over here and expect a big change. All of these things that I just spoke of, and indeed the five things that we really pay a lot of attention to in what a go-to-market strategy looks like, they're all interrelated. And if you change one, invariably the others are going to change, whether you like it or not. So go-to-market has got much more complex for technology companies today. Let's talk about those five things that you just mentioned, Paul. Tell us a bit more about them. Sure. Five things. Vision and strategy, number one. Is your vision contemporary? Is your strategy reflective of that vision? And is that strategy relevant for today? Number two, what is going on in the category in which you participate? That is to say, we all, you know, all of our products and services are part of some, what we might call investable category. It's what we spend money on. I'm gonna buy this, I'm gonna buy that, I'm gonna buy something over here in a different category. Where are you in that category? Is my category growing? Is my category static? Or is my category actually declining? Or has it reached a point where there are new categories that are coming into the marketplace where people are starting to say, you know, that is a lot more interesting than what you're doing. Not everybody, but the early adopter. Number three, what is happening with your offer? So the offer that you provide, is that still contemporary? Is that still seen as a must-have, not a nice-to-have? Does it solve the problems of today and tomorrow, or does it solve the problems of yesterday? Number four, what's the positioning of your company and your products and services? Because buyers look at both. I may like your products and services, but I don't like you as a company. Vice versa, I love you guys as a company, but what you're currently offering is not relevant to me. So we want to look at positioning. Finally, we look at the branding and messaging that comes out of that positioning. Is that still contemporary? Does it still hold with the four other elements that we have just talked about? Is it still fresh? Is it still relevant to buyers, not only current buyers, but prospective buyers? All five of those things are deeply interrelated. And again, the problem that we see oftentimes is that companies want to change one without looking at the others. One thing that's quite interesting is that strategy, people often think of that as a kind of fixed long-term thing, but actually looking at that regularly has huge value because as we've just talked about, it affects the other four dimensions of going to market as well. Indeed. And in fact, what I've talked about strategy, I mentioned it earlier, but what is really strategy? It's a set of assumptions. If I'm willing to say that my assumptions have changed, then it's much easier to say, therefore, my strategy must change. And when we look at, not to get this all scientific, 
But when we look at a set of strategies, we say, why did you choose this strategy? What were the assumptions that you built this strategy on? And people said, well, you know, respondents might say, well, we did it in an environment of, you know, this was a new category. We did it in an environment where um, people needed this particular product or service, uh, at, or they realized that they could have this particular benefit that they weren't aware of previously. Question, is that still the case? And so you go from there. And that helps you get kind of a handle on what is it about these five things and all of their permutations that we now have to look at in total or interrelatedly that where we might need a change. And, and one thing that um, I think hopefully you'll relate to this, but one thing that you know we sometimes see is that strategy is this big unwieldy thing, you know, it's 300 slides impenetrable to most in an organization and from a go-to-market perspective you know how do you, how can you expect you know a, a go-to-market team to kind of get those other four dimensions right if that strategy is, is you know is in that form yeah if it's too complicated if a strategy is too complicated if it's too esoteric if it takes too long to explain you're going to have trouble in the execution of it a strategy has got to be something that you can sit on one page of paper and it's got to be simple enough and repeatable enough memorable enough so somebody can not only know what that strategy is and tell you about it they can feel what that is if I need 30 slides to explain what I do that's 25 slides too many any great salesperson will tell you I have about 90 seconds to two minutes to make an impression on my prospect. After that, the mind and the ears begin to close. So given that we've seen people often take a very sort of tactical approach to solving some of their go-to-market challenges, how do you know where to start? Ask yourself some questions. If I change this aspect of the strategy, what does that do to the offer that I'm providing into the marketplace? If I change my offer, does that affect how people are going to perceive me within the category? If I change my offer, do I need to reposition that offer? So the first step is to actually get an assessment of how you think you're doing and how your colleagues are doing, and then stack it up against what some best practices are for making those changes, depending on how you rank. I'm not doing very well. I'm doing pretty good. I'm really nailing it. So just to sum up, five key elements of go-to-market strategy. Vision and strategy, category, offer, positioning, and branding. That's it, John. Five things. All of them interrelated. If you look at one, you need to look at the others. Don't just tinker around the edges. Treat this as all key parts of how you bring your company to market. So once again, thanks Paul, and thanks, thanks everyone for listening.